Chapter Two of No Great Magic by Fritz Leiber. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Two. History does not move in one current like the wind across bare seas, but in a thousand streams and eddies like the wind over a broken landscape. Carrie. The boys' half of the dressing room, two thirds really, was bustling. There was the smell of spirit gum and Max Factor and just plain men. Several guys were getting dressed, or un, and Bruce was cussing bloody something because he'd just burnt his fingers unwinding from the neck of a hot electric bulb some crepe hair he'd wound there to dry after wetting and stretching it to turn it from crinkly to straight for his manco beard. Bruce is always getting to the theater late and trying shortcuts. But I had eyes only for Sid. So help me, as soon as I saw him, they bugged again. Greta, I told myself, you're going to have to send Martin out to the drugstore for some anti-bug powder. For the roaches, boy? No, for the eyes. Sid was made up, and had his long mustaches and elf-locked Macbeth wig on, and his corset, too. I could tell by the way his waist was sucked in before he saw me. But instead of dark kilts and that bronze-studded, sweat-stained leather battle harness that lets him show off his beefy shoulders and the top half of his heavily furred chest, and which really does look great on Macbeth in the first act when he comes in straight from battle, but instead of that he was wearing, so help me, red tights cross-garnered with strips of gold-blue tinsel cloth, a green doublet gold-trimmed, and to top it a ruff and he was trying to fit onto his front a bright silvered cuirass that would have looked just dandy maybe on one of the Pope's Swiss guards. I thought, City, Willie S. ought to reach out of his portrait there and bop you one on the cocoa for contemplating such a crazy quilt desecration of just about his greatest and certainly his most atmospheric play. Just then he noticed me and hissed accusingly, there thou art, slothy minx. Spring to and help stuff me into this monstrous chest-kettle. City, what is all this? I demanded, as my hands automatically obeyed. Are you going to play Macbeth for laughs? Except maybe leaving the porter a serious character. You think you're Red Skelton? What monstrous brabble is this, you mad bitch? he retorted, grunting as I bear-hugged his waist, shouldering the cuirass to squeeze it home. The clown costumes on all you men, I told him, for now I'd noticed that the others were in rainbow hues. Bruce a real eye-buster in yellow tights and violet doublet, as he furiously brushed out and clipped crosswise sections of beard and slapped them on his chin, gleaming brown with spirit gum. I haven't seen any eight-inch polka-dots yet, but I'm sure I will. Suddenly a big grin split City's face and he laughed out loud at me, though the laugh changed to a gasp, as I strapped in the cuirass three notches too tight. When we got that adjusted, he said, I faith thou slayest me, pretty whittling. Did I not tell you this production is an experiment, a novelty? We shall but show Macbeth as it might have been costumed at the court of King James, in the clothes of the day, but gaudier, as was then the stage fashion. Hold, dove, I've something for thee. 
he fumbled his grouch-bag from under his doublet, and dipped finger and thumb in it, and put in my palm a silver model of the Empire State Building, charm-bracelet size, and one of the new Kennedy dimes. As I squeezed those two and gloated my eyes on them, feeling securer and happier and friendlier for them, though I didn't at the moment want to, I thought, well, City's right about that. At least I've read they used to costume the plays that way. Though I don't see how Shakespeare stood it. But it was dirty of them all not to tell me beforehand. But that's the way of it. Sometimes I'm the butt as well as the pet of the dressing-room, and considering all the breaks I get, I shouldn't mind. I smiled at Sid and went on tiptoes, and necked out my head and kissed him on a powdery cheek, just above an aromatic mustache. Then I wiped the smile off my face and said, Okay, Siddy, play Macbeth as little Lord Fauntleroy or Baby Snooks if you want to. I'll never squeak again. But the Elizabeth prologue's still an anachronism. And this is the thing I came to tell you, Siddy. Miss Neffer's not getting ready for any measly prologue. She's set to play Queen Elizabeth all night and tomorrow morning, too. Whatever you think, she doesn't know we're doing Macbeth. But who'll do Lady Mac if she doesn't? And Martin's not dressed for Malcolm, but for the son of the last of the Mohicans, I'd say. What's more, you know, something I said must have annoyed Sid, for he changed his mood again in a flash. Shut your jaw, you crook-brained cat, and be gone, he snarled at me. Here's curtain time close upon us, and you come like a wittol scattering your mad questions, like the crazed Ophelia her flowers. Be gone, I say. Yes, sir, I whipped out softly. I skittered off toward the door to the stage, because that was the easiest direction. I figured I could do with the breath of less grease-painty air. Then, oh, Greta, I heard Martin call nicely. He changed his Levi's for black tights, and was stepping into and pulling up around him a very familiar dress, dark green and embroidered with silver and stage rubies. He'd safety-pinned a folded towel around his chest, to make a bosom of sorts, I realized. He armed into the sleeves and turned his back to me. Uh, hook me up, would you? he entreated. Then it hit me. They had no actresses in Shakespeare's day. They used boys. And the dark green dress was so familiar to me because— Martin, I said, halfway up the hooks and working fast. Miss Neffer's costume fitted him fine. You're going to play— Lady Macbeth, yes, he finished for me. Wish me courage, will you, Greta? Nobody else seems to think I need it. I punched him half-heartedly in the rear. Then, as I fastened the last hooks, my eyes topped his shoulder, and I looked at our faces side by side in the mirror of his dressing-table. His, in spite of the female edging, and him being at least eight years younger than me, I think looked wise, poised, infinitely resourceful, with power in reserve, very, very real while mine looked like that of a bewildered and characterless child-ghost about to scatter into air, and the edges of my charcoal sweater and skirt, contrasting with his strong colors, didn't dispel that last illusion. "'Oh, by the way, Greta,' he said, "'I picked up a copy of the Village Times for you. There's a thumbnail review of our Measure for Measure, though it mentions no names, darn it. It's around here somewhere.' But I was already hurrying on. 
Oh, it was logical enough to have Martin playing Mrs. Macbeth in a production styled to Shakespeare's own times, though pedantly over-authentic, I'd have thought, and it really did answer all my questions, even why Miss Nefer could sink herself wholly in Elizabeth tonight if she wanted to. But it meant that I must be missing so much of what was going on right around me in spite of spending twenty-four hours a day in the dressing-room, or at most in the small adjoining john or in the wings of the stage just outside the dressing-room door, that it scared me. City telling everybody Macbeth tonight in Elizabethan costume, boys and girls, sure that I could have missed, though you'd have thought he'd have asked my help on the costumes. But Martin getting up in Mrs. Mac. Why, someone must have held the part on him twenty-eight times, cueing him, while he got the lines. And there must have been at least a couple of run-through rehearsals to make sure he had all the business and stage movements down pat, and Sid and Martin would have been doing their big scenes every backstage minute they could spare with Sid yelling, "'Whittling thinks that's a wifely boss,' and Martin would have been droning his lines last time he scrubbed and mopped. Greta. They're hiding things from you, I told myself. Maybe there was a twenty-fifth hour nobody had told me about yet, when they did all the things they didn't tell me about. Maybe they were things they didn't dare tell me because of my top-story weakness. I felt a cold draft and shivered, and I realized I was at the door to the stage. I should explain that our stage is rather an unusual one in that it can face two ways, with the drops and set-pieces and lighting all capable of being switched around completely. To your left, as you look out the dressing-room door, is an open-air theater, or rather an open-air place for the audience. A large upward-sloping glade, walled by thick, tall trees, and with benches for over two thousand people. On that side the stage kind of merges into the grass and can be made to look part of it by a green ground-cloth. To your right is a big-roofed auditorium with the same number of seats. The whole thing grew out of the free summer Shakespeare performances in Central Park that they started back in the 1950s. The Janus stage idea is that in nice weather you can have the audience outdoors, but if it rains or there's a cold snap, or if you want to play all winter without a break, as we've been doing, then you can put your audience in the auditorium. In that case, a big accordion-pleated wall shuts off the out-of-doors and keeps the wind from blowing your backdrop, which is on that side, of course, when the auditorium's in use. Tonight the stage was set up to face the outdoors, although that draft felt mighty chilly. I hesitated, as I always do, at the door to the stage though it wasn't the actual stage lying ahead of me, but only backstage, the wings. You see, I always have to fight the feeling that if I go out the dressing-room door, go out just eight steps, the world will change while I'm out there, and I'll never be able to get back. It won't be New York City any more, but Chicago, or Mars, or Algiers, or Atlanta, Georgia, or Atlantis, or hell and I'll never be able to get back to that lovely warm womb with all the jolly boys and girls, and all the costumes smelling like autumn leaves. Or especially when there's a cold breeze blowing. I'm afraid that I'll change, that I'll grow wrinkled and old in eight footsteps, or shrink down to the witless blob of a baby 
or forget altogether who I am, or it occurred to me for the first time now, remember who I am, which might be even worse. Maybe that's what I'm afraid of. I took a step back. I noticed something new just beside the door, a high-legged, short keyboard piano. Then I saw that the legs were those of a table. The piano was just a box with yellowed keys. Spin it? Harpsichord? Five minutes, everybody, Martin quietly called out behind me. I took hold of myself. Greta, I told myself, also for the first time, you know that some day you're really going to have to face this thing, and not just for a quick dip out and back, either. Better get in some practice. I stepped through the door. Bo and Doc were already out there, made up and in costume for Ross and King Duncan. They were discreetly peering past the wings at the gathering audience, or at the place where the audience ought to be gathering at any rate. Sometimes the movies and girly shows and brain-heavy beatnik brouhaha's outdraw us altogether. Their costumes were the same kooky, colorful ones as the others. Doc had a mock ermine robe and a huge gilt papier-mâché crown. Bo was carrying a ragged black robe and a hood over his left arm. He doubles the first witch. As I came up behind them, making no noise in my black sneakers, I heard Bo say, I see some rude fellows from the city approaching. I was hoping we wouldn't get any of those. How should they scent us out? Brother, I thought, where do you expect them to come from if not the city? Central Park is bounded on three sides by Manhattan Island, and on the fourth by the Eighth Avenue subway. And Brooklyn and Bronx boys have got pretty sharp centers. And what's it get you insulting the waking and non-waking people of the Royals' greatest metropolis? Be grateful for any audience you get, boy. But I suppose Bo Lassiter considers anybody from north of Vicksburg a rude fellow, and is always waiting for the day when the entire audience will arrive in carriage and Democrat wagons. Doc replied, holding down his white beard and heavy on the mongrel Russo-German accent he miraculously manages to suppress on stage, except when, What does it matter? We don't convince them. We don't convince nobody. Nichevo. Maybe, I thought, Doc shares my doubts about making Macbeth plausible in rainbow pants. Still unobserved by them, I looked between their shoulders and got the first of my shocks. It wasn't night at all, but afternoon. A dark, cold, lowering afternoon, admittedly, but afternoon all the same. Sure, between shows I sometimes forget whether it's day or night, living inside like I do. But getting matinees and evening performances mixed is something else again. It also seemed to me, although Bo was leaning in now and I couldn't see so well, that the glade was smaller than it should be, the trees closer to us and more irregular, and I couldn't see the benches. That was shock, too. Bo said anxiously, glancing at his wrist, I wonder what's holding up the queen. Although I was busy keeping up nerve pressure against the shocks, I managed to think. So he knows about City's stupid Queen Elizabeth prologue, too. But of course he would. It's only me they keep in the dark. If he's so smart, he ought to remember that Miss Neffer is always the last person on stage, even when she opens the play. And then I thought I heard, through the trees, 
the distant drumming of horses' hoofs, and the sound of a horn. Now they do have horseback riding in Central Park, and you can hear auto horns there, but the hoofbeats don't drum that wild way, and there aren't so many riding together, and no auto horn I ever heard gave out with that sweet yet imperious ta-ta-ta-ta. I must have squeaked or something, because Bo and Doc turned around quickly, blocking my view, their expressions half angry, half anxious. I turned to and ran for the dressing-room, for I could feel one of my mind-wavery fits coming on. At the last second it had seemed to me that the scenery was getting skimpier, hardly more than thin trees and bushes itself, and underfoot feeling more like ground than a ground-cloth, and overhead not theater roof, but gray sky. Shock three, and you're out, Greta, my umpire was calling. I made it through the dressing-room door, and nothing there was wavering or dissolving, praised be, Pan. Just Martin, standing with his back to me, alert, alive, poised like a cat inside that green dress, the prompt book in his right hand with a finger in it, and from his left hand long black tatters swinging, telling me he'd still be doubling second witch. And he was hissing, Places, please, everybody, on stage! With a sweep of silver and ash-colored plush, Miss Neffer came past him, for once leading the last-minute hurry to the stage. She had on the dark red wig now, for me that crowned her characterization. It made me remember her saying, My brain burns. I ducked aside as if she were majesty incarnate. And then she didn't break her own precedent. She stopped at the new thing beside the door, and poised her long white skinny fingers over the yellowed keys, and suddenly I remembered what it was called, a virginals. She stared down at it fiercely, evilly, like a witch planning an enchantment. Her face got the secret fiendish look that, I told myself, the real Elizabeth would have had ordering the deaths of Ballard and Babington, or plotting with Drake for all they say she didn't, one of his raids, that long, long forefinger tracing crooked courses through a crabbedly drawn map of the Indies, and she smiling at the dots of cities that would burn. Then all her eight fingers came flickering down, and the strings inside the virginals began to twang and hum with the high-pitched rendering of Grieg's in the Hall of the Mountain King. Then, as Sid and Bruce and Martin rushed past me, along with the black swooping that was Maud already robed and hooded for third witch, I beat it for my sleeping closet like Peer Gint himself, dashing across the mountainside away from the cave of the Troll King, who only wanted to make tiny slits in his eyeballs, so that forever afterwards he'd see reality just a little differently. And as I ran, the master anachronism of that menacing mad march music was shrilling in my ears. End of chapter 2